Hello, podcast world. I am so glad you are here. Before we get going today, let me say thanks for all the notes and questions and comments I've gotten since we've started this series. It has really confirmed to me that this is something that people are wrestling with, and hopefully I can at least facilitate some of that really important wrestling. Also, I've picked up a couple of new Patreon donors, which is incredibly helpful. If you are able to contribute, you can go to patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Skip Collins. And so with that, welcome to Deeply Spiritual, but Rather Uncertain. Today we're going to dive into the New Testament passages that speak to same-sex relationships. They are all attributed to the Apostle Paul. There's nothing in the Gospels on this subject. Jesus doesn't ever speak to this issue. It's only Paul. Romans chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9, and 1 Timothy 1, 10. Although I do need to say there's lots of debate as to whether Paul really wrote the letters to Timothy, but that's a debate for another day. In order to dive into these passages, we have to talk a little bit about a couple of Greek words, as well as some church history. The first word is arsenokoitai. Right up front, let me be clear that this one little word is the cause of much debate and disagreement among theologians and New Testament scholars. It won't be hard to find opposing views on this matter. Paul uses this word in both the Corinthians passage as well as in Timothy. It seems to be a word that Paul made up. These are the only two times it appears in the New Testament, and it's only found in Greek literature after Paul used it in these two passages. So the truth is that it's impossible to know with complete certainty what Paul is talking about. It's a word that's made up of two Greek words that are put together. Arson means male, And koitai means bed, so it's literally male bed. But just because the word combines two words does not automatically mean what it looks like it might mean. So, for example, bulldozer is not a sleeping bull. And a butterfly is not a fly covered in butter. So how are we supposed to figure out what arsenokoitai really means? Nobody would disagree with the idea that this word has something to do with homosexual behavior, but is Paul speaking about what we know as committed same-sex relationship? Does this have anything to do with the gay marriage debate? Some theologians believe that Paul is referring back to the Leviticus passages, which is a real possibility. 
in, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which would have been how Paul studied the Torah, the words arson and koitai are used separately in that passage. So Paul may have just combined them into one word. If that's the case, then Paul was probably referring to, as we saw in the last episode, something like pederasty or male prostitution or some kind of sexual exploitation. If you look at the few times that the word is used in Greek literature after Paul, it's not always used in terms of sexual activity. But when it does speak to sexual activity, it always has the image of economic or sexual exploitation. As we saw in the last episode, same-sex activity during this time almost always had to do with pederasty or prostitution. It was about power and abuse. So it's very possible that that is what Paul is referring to. And just to see how difficult it is to translate this word, let's go back to church history a little bit. It was in the mid-1940s that this word was first translated as homosexual or homosexual activity, which is how you see it now in most current English versions. But before 1946, it was translated very differently. The King James translated this word as abusers of themselves with mankind. Other translations use the word sodomites. I read an interesting article about pre-1940s German versions of the New Testament, and almost all of them translate this word as men having sex with boys, or sometimes as boy molesters. But in 1946, a new English version of the RSV used the word homosexual for the first time. Today, the NIV translates arsenokoitai as men having sex with men. The Living Bible and numerous other translations say men who practice homosexuality. At the same time, though, the updated version of the RSV translate this word as men who engage in illicit sex. And a few other modern translations stick with the old King James using men who abuse themselves with mankind. And so you see there's really very little agreement on this word. We just don't know with certainty what Paul was trying to say. But personally, I believe that to use the word homosexual in the translation of arsenokoitai is really misleading. Our understanding of a person that is born with a same-sex orientation was not at all understood at the time the Bible was written, and so obviously there's no word in either Greek or Hebrew that is anything like what we understand as homosexual today. While I would agree that Paul is speaking about same-sex activity, I don't think he is talking about committed relationships that are the result of sexual orientation. 
it makes a lot more sense to me that he's speaking of some kind of erotic same-sex activity that's the result of sexual or economic exploitation. In the First Corinthians passage, he uses another word that we should talk about. It's the Greek word malakoi. Literally, it means soft. In Matthew, this word is used to describe fine linen. But when malakoi is used in a moral context, like it is in Corinthians and Timothy, it's talking about someone who lacks self-control or who is weak or who is a coward. Remember when you were in high school, there was that boy in your class that couldn't throw a ball. And the coach would say something horrible like, you throw like a girl. Malakoy was kind of like that, because at this time in history, women were seen as weak and lacking courage and lacking self-control. So it's interesting that many English translations of the Bible translate Malakoy as effeminate. That seems a bit odd to say, that if you're effeminate, you are just like thieves or drunkards, or adulterers, and you won't inherit the kingdom of God. Really? So what some biblical translators do to solve this problem is they just combine the words malakoi and arsenokoitai, and they call it homosexual activity. They would argue that Malakoy is a man who takes a passive role in same-sex activity, and Arsenokoitai is the one who takes the active role. But there is a huge problem with that. The word Malakoy is rarely used in terms of sexual behavior. And when it is, it's not about same-sex relations. It was actually applied much more frequently to men who succumbed to the charms of a woman, men who were controlled by women. It was the man who refused to wear the pants in the family, as it were. They were soft. So what's my point in all this? There is no way we can conclusively say that these scriptures are condemning all same-sex relations. At the same time, if I'm honest, I have to say that we also can't say that they're not. We just have to acknowledge that they're there, but we cannot base our view of the LGBTQ plus community on these two passages of scripture. If we do, we are just not being fair to the text. So that brings me to the last passage, and probably the most difficult to translate of all of them. It's found in Romans chapter 1. And much has been written about this passage. In fact, in the book I mentioned before called Bible, Gender, and Sexuality, James Brownson takes four chapters to unpack this passage of Scripture. I thought about doing an entire podcast on this one passage, but I was afraid I would bore you to tears, and I probably still wouldn't do justice to it. So I just want to address the matter of what is natural and unnatural, because we find these words in verse 26 and 27. But before we look at those verses, 
we have to speak about the context of this passage because that is super important to this argument. Paul most likely wrote the book of Romans somewhere around 57 or 58. Now, in the year 49, Emperor Claudius evicted all the Jews from Rome. They all had to leave. They were only allowed back after five years when Claudius died. So during the years 49 to 54, the church in Rome was made up of only Gentile believers. And when the Jewish Christians started to come back five or six years later, they found a very different church than the one they left. And so there was great conflict that arose between the Jewish followers of Jesus and the Gentile followers of Jesus. This is the church that Paul is writing to and the problem that he is addressing. Paul is not writing systematic theology. He's writing a letter to a divided and polarized church and trying to help them see the mess that they have made of everything. That is critical in our understanding and our interpretation of Romans. Now, in the first couple of chapters of the book, he's trying to help the Jews see that Everybody is in need of the saving grace of Jesus, both Jewish people and Gentile people. But he begins by talking about those Gentiles. I mean, look how horrible they are. It's like some speak here in America of those immigrants. Or in South Africa, it's those blacks. We paint them with this very broad brush, and we speak about how horrible they are. So allow me to paraphrase a little of this chapter in this context. Now, I realize I'm taking some liberties here, but just humor me for a minute. My paraphrase would go something like this. My Jewish friends, do you know how horrible those Gentiles are? I mean, it's absolutely despicable. They worship idols that are made out of stone, and they covet everything. They covet everything you have and everything you have worked hard for. They're deceitful. You can't trust a word they say. They're gossips and they're liars. They're slanders. They're God-haters. They're arrogant and boastful. They invent new ways of doing evil. And get this, get this, they disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. I mean, can you believe it? This is exactly what Paul was doing in chapter 1, but it's all a setup. Remember that Paul's writing a letter. There's no chapters and verses. So immediately following this setup in chapter 1, this scathing critique of those Gentiles, in chapter 2, he turns the table on the Jews and he says, but you are no better than they are. And he goes on to talk of their judgmentalism and their arrogance. Chapter 1 was not meant to be taken as a list of personal sins that condemn us. It was meant to say, no matter how good you think you are, you are still in need of Jesus. Jesus. 
When I began to understand this passage in its proper context, things began to fall into place for me. But we still need to address the two verses in which he seems to speak about same-sex relationships. So let me read verses 26 and 27 to you, not as a paraphrase, but from the new RSV updated edition. Um, In the previous verses, before what I'm going to read, Paul's talking about the Gentiles. He says they worship idols, they have abandoned God, and then he says this, For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. Their females exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural, and in the same way also males giving up the natural intercourse with females and were consumed with their passionate desires for one another. Males committed shameless acts with males and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. So the question at hand is this. When Paul speaks of natural intercourse and unnatural, what is he speaking about? Now, on a very kind of simple level, it's pretty easy for those of us who are heterosexual to say homosexuality doesn't seem normal to us. It's just weird. In fact, it's like repulsive. It's not normal. That's certainly how I thought for a really long time. I remember back in the late 1970s, I was in London during a pride parade, and it was the first time I had ever seen men holding hands and kissing. I was totally put off. But somewhere along the road to my inclusion, I began to wonder if my gay friends were as repulsed by heterosexual relationships as I was by homosexual relationships. And then I wondered what it would be like if the tables were turned And I was part of a religion that told me that my heterosexual orientation was not of God. A religion that told me that if I just married a man, I would eventually fall in love with him and everything would be fine. A religion that told me that if I prayed hard enough, God would make me homosexual. I mean, how horrible would that be? I just can't imagine. And how horrible that is for so many people in the LGBTQ plus community. My point is that we can't define Paul's use of natural and unnatural by our own feelings or biases. Could that be what Paul was doing, speaking about his own biases? Possibly, possibly not. I don't know, but let's go on. A couple of episodes ago, I spoke about Genesis chapter 2, because in my opinion, that's the filter through which we most often read natural and unnatural. We judge what is natural and unnatural by gender complementarity. 
God created male and female to complement each other. And as we spoke about in that episode, we can really define gender complementarity in two ways, either hierarchy and or biology. So when Paul speaks of what is unnatural, what exactly did he mean? Was he speaking about the natural hierarchy in creation? This idea that man was created as the dominant being and so woman's role was to serve him and to complete him? Was he condemning the man who takes a passive role in sex and a woman who takes a dominant role in sex because that messed with the hierarchy? Well, that's a real possibility. Or maybe he was speaking of natural in a biological sense, that the sexual organs of males and females just fit together, and in that process, they create babies. They multiply the earth, as was the command in Genesis. Well, that's a possibility as well, because marriage in the first century was pretty much viewed as the way you carried on your family name. It wasn't about loving and caring and friendship and equality as marriage is viewed today. And in much of Greek culture, any sexual activity that didn't involve procreation, whether it was a man and a woman together or any other combination, it was considered unnatural. If semen was spilled in a way that could not create a baby, it was seen as unnatural. Could that be how Paul defines what is natural and unnatural? Well, possibly. But let me throw out another possibility of what Paul might have been talking about. Excess. Maybe we can even call it sexual addiction. He says that people exchanged their natural attraction for unnatural that doesn't seem at all about orientation, but rather about excess, about eroticism, about uncontrolled addiction. So maybe that's what he's talking about. Some theologians suggest that when Paul uses the word unnatural, he uses it as a synonym for unconventional. It's something that's just out of the ordinary. In South Africa, there's a phrase that is thrown about often. It says, it's not my culture. In other words, it's just not something we do. And maybe that's what Paul meant. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul is talking about women covering their heads in church and about men having long or short hair. He says it's just not natural for men to have long hair. The word he uses there, the natural word, is the same basic word he uses um, when he's speaking about same-sex relationships. Now, in the long hair debate, we all understand that as the culture of the day, especially since there are places in the Old Testament that suggest that a man's long hair was seen as a special devotion to God. So maybe unnatural in Romans chapter 1 is the exact same thing. It's just not our culture. 
So now have I totally confused you? In some respects, that's my point. We just don't know for sure what Paul was talking about. We just can't say that he's condemning LGBTQ plus as we know it. But we have taken this idea of what is natural and unnatural and made it say exactly what we want it to say. We have made it say things that Paul probably was not considering at all. We use the words to prop up our own personal narrative or our own preferred theology. We use them to reinforce our personal biases and we call it the Word of God. We say, don't blame me, it's in the Bible, when the truth is, it isn't. So I've spent the last two episodes looking at all six of these passages in Scripture that speak to the idea of same-sex relationships. None of them answer the question of whether a committed, sacrificial, loving, same-sex relationship is a sin. In all of these cases, there are a number of things that they might be speaking about, but none of them actually speak to the issue of orientation as we understand it today. So then what? If the Bible doesn't speak to this issue, how do we decide what is right and wrong? And that's exactly what we're going to be talking about next time. Maybe we could say it this way. Now that we know what the Bible isn't saying, then what is it actually saying? So I hope you'll join me as we continue to unpack this important subject. I would love to hear your thoughts and opinions. You can reach out to me on social media or my website at skipcollins.com or um, by email at skipinusa at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. See you next time. Shalom.